This is God's word from Luke 12, 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life, the span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So good to see you. Uh, recently, my wife and I started a diet. Uh, it's pretty terrible. It's called the keto diet. You may have heard of it. And she started about five, week, five weeks before I did. And I jumped in for moral support and partly to choose better food options 
And then also because she kept saying, and I quote, your belly is getting fat. So I felt like, you know, now's the time, right? So I jumped in, I started this, this diet. And if you don't know about the keto diet, it's pretty miserable. It, uh, it's kind of the big idea. There's a lot of concepts, but the big idea is very, very low carbs. And so no pasta, no wheat, no grains, no happiness, no joy, um, no pleasure. So that's, that's the diet. And it's been going well for about two weeks for me. She's been on it about five weeks before I started. But here's the crazy thing. I never would have told you on, on the front end of this thing that food was an issue for me, ever. I would have told you that I have no broken relationship with food. It's not hard for me to say no. I can choose when to eat. I can choose what to eat. This will be no problem. About day four, I was driving down 19th Street and Moore, which I call the, the chicken and pizza street of Moore. It's like chicken and pizza, chicken and pizza. Every other, you know, restaurant is chicken and pizza. I don't know why they did that. But I had the strongest urge. It was almost like I was an addict. It took all of my willpower not to yank the wheel and turn in and get like a basket of Raisin Cane's chicken and that sauce. Praise be to God for that sauce. And, and, and I just started dreaming about eating pizza I started thinking about eating pizza. I started creating pizza recipes in my head. And I knew it got like really out of control and I started thinking about, I could open up a pizza shop and stop being a pastor, you know, and, and it just got out of control. And so I, 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 and then I noticed that when I would get home, I was really angry with my kids. I was short about no big thing, just blowing up and agitated and irritated and, and didn't even realize how much food actually affects my emotional state as a human being. And by the way, I'm still like that way today. So sorry if I come off a little weird to you. Uh, but but, that, but that's, that's what happened. And I realized that this thing that I didn't even know on the front end, I would have said, yeah, no problem. This is easy. Actually was controlling my world. It actually had a hold and a grip on me without me ever even realizing it. Isn't it bizarre how we can often talk about how free we are as people and talk about how we can do whatever we want and make our own decisions. But deep down inside, most of us are actually controlled and owned by various things. Some of these things are sinful. Some of these things are, they're, they're neutral, morally neutral. Um, but, but often we're owned and driven and controlled by things without even realizing what those things are. And it takes like a really difficult diet before you realize, oh, this was actually a big deal. I think one of the things that controls a lot of Americans and a lot of you sitting out there, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of times the way that I live, one of the things that controls us and owns us is the God of money. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about money and what happens when we take this morally neutral thing and we elevate it to the status of a God. Now I know that right when I say that I see it on your faces and I can feel it in the room, some of you are just cringing in this moment. You're like, I should have, I should have gone to the lake I shouldn't have showed up today. Some of you are like, why did I bring my friends on this Sunday? You know, and you're just kind of kicking yourself. So I just want to lean into that tension for just a minute and say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, and if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, we're not after your money. But we are after your discipleship, and we are after your formation. And money is so closely tied to what you love and what you worship that if we're, if we're going to pursue discipleship and if we're going to be honest about the claims of Jesus to you, if you're wrestling with what those are, then this has to be a part of the conversation. And I just want to say from the get-go that actually Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants your life. He wants your body. He wants your, your, your sex life. He wants your free time. 
He wants your jo- every part about you, your relationships. He wants your entire heart and your entire life, not just a slice of it. So if you're worried about Jesus wanting your money, oh, it's much, much, much worse than that. He wants all of you, right? And he's gonna be relentless until he gets all of you. That's, that's the, the, the reality of Jesus and money and what happens when our loves with money get disordered. There, there's something that Jesus says in Luke 12, I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 15, he makes what I think is, is one of the most shocking verses about sin. Uh, and I wanna read it to you. I want you to think about this. In verse 15, here's what he says. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Be careful, Jesus says, about the sin of wanting money and coveting money. Be careful, watch out. Now think about that. What other sins can you think of in the Bible where that type of language is used? If you think of more traditional sins, you don't really have that language used of like, hey, be, be careful, uh, watch out that you don't commit adultery. Make sure that you're not currently committing adultery. Why? Because when you're committing adultery, when you're sleeping with someone that isn't your spouse, then you know, you actually know that in that moment you are committing adultery. You don't have to like wonder halfway through, is this, is this adultery right now? No, that, yes, it's adultery, you know it. You know that you've crossed the line when you've crossed that line. But with money, it's different. You actually don't know when you've crossed the line. You actually aren't immediately aware when you've slipped into an unhealthy relationship with money where it has become something that you love and you're now coveting this greed piece. Jesus is saying, hey, watch out, be careful because you don't actually know if this is in you off the top of your head. You have to be suspicious of yourself. You have to guard, you have to be careful, you have to watch out. So this is something that I think if you're just kind of checking out like, well, this obviously isn't for me. I don't have a lot of money, so I don't struggle with this. Or I have a lot of money, I don't struggle with this. Wherever you are, this might be in you. And just like me with my relationship with food, you may not even know it. So how do you know? How do you know if money is something that you worship? Well, Jesus gives us some indications in Luke 12. I just want to give you four of them real briefly. The first one is this. You worship money if you look to it for comfort and security. If you look to money for comfort and security, then that is a clear sign that you worship money. And, and what Jesus does in Luke 12 is fascinating. There's this brother who comes to Jesus and he says, hey, um, my brother is not dividing our father's inheritance appropriately. He owes me some money. Tell my brother to give me my money. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's not why I left heaven and came to this earth. I'm actually not interested in being your lawyer and, and being the arbitrator between you two brothers. And then he turns to the crowd and he kind of spontaneously goes into this teaching moment about money. He uses a parable about a farmer who has an incredibly successful year. Crops are amazing. He's starting to, to reap the benefits of it. So much so, he has so much success with his crops that year that not even the barns that he has built will house the, um, the amount of, of produce that he's bringing in. So in this culture in the first century, this would have been tremendous amounts of wealth to, to have more than you can even fit in your barns. And so what he does is interesting. He, he, he says, you know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And then by the end of the story, Jesus says that when God looks at this man, instead of saying, hey, that was really wise of you to tear down your barns and build bigger ones, he says, you fool. In fact, the parable is called the, the, the parable of the rich fool. He says, you fool, you're gonna die tonight. And now, what was the point of your life? That you thought everything was good and you were safe and secure? But actually tonight your life is going to be required of you. Not because you're rich, 
look at how foolish you are in this moment that that's where you trusted and that's where you hoped. But right before this, this man says something to himself and we get to watch this inner dialogue play out. I just want to read this to you. This is in verse 19. Listen to the, the inner dialogue of this man as he reaps this great, this great harvest. Verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, what, what God is saying in this moment is not that the man's a, a fool because he was rich. He's saying, hey, fool, instead of thinking about what you could do with all of this produce and how you could be a blessing to other people, which, by the way, in the Old Testament, there are all these laws about uh, God basically trying to keep people from becoming uh, overly wealthy to the expense of the poor and the poor being overly poor. So he put in all these laws so that if you were to uh, get a great produce or, or everything was going great, you would actually have these pathways of giving away some of that produce to the poor and to the needy in his community. And instead of him being outward focused with his funds whatsoever, what he does is he says, you know what I'm going to do? Tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and then I'm, I'm going to just chill. I'm going to relax. I'm going to treat myself in this moment, and I'm going to just eat, drink, and be merry. He's looking to his stuff for comfort and security and God calls him a fool. Now it's crazy, isn't it? Th this should terrify every American in the room. Every American in the room should be a little bit freaked out by verse 19. Why? Because I find in this statement what most people in America are actually striving for for their entire lives, right? Soul, you have ample goods laid up, and laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream right there. That's the vision of our lives. It's I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard now. I'm going to achieve and acquire and get all the stuff. I'm going to live like no one else now so that one day I can live like no one else and just enjoy all the stuff that I have. That's scary to me because that's so much of, of how I view my own life and what Jesus is saying is, hey, you should be on guard against that. You should actually watch out. So if you look to money for comfort and security this is a God that you worship. Number two, Jesus gives us another thing. You worship money if you have excessive anxiety about it. Excessive anxiety about money. Notice that this, this parable of the rich fool is immediately followed by Jesus' teachings on anxiety. And, and a lot of times people will just take that passage and make it its own topic and we'll talk about uh, anxious systems and what it is to be uh, living in anxiety. But before that, Jesus is connecting all of what he's saying to this concept of money. And then he rolls right in and he says, not to be anxious. In fact, he says it like this in verse 22. Turns to his disciples. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So he's saying, don't be anxious. And this is rolling out of his teaching on money. And so here's the point. It's not wrong to have a budget. In fact, if you're here and you don't have a budget, could I just urge you to please get a budget and start doing that? Whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Everybody should have a budget because that's how you steward your money well and actually use it in a way that's appropriate and wise. So it's not wrong to have a budget. Don't hear that. But if, if you're so enmeshed with your bank account that your level of joy and happiness and security in life go up when you have a lot of money, but then your level of freaking out goes up when your bank account drops, 
then you are so connected to this that it's actually creating this culture of anxiety in your life. And Jesus is saying that right then what you're doing is instead of placing trust in me, who is actually the one that takes care of the birds and the flowers, you're putting trust in yourself and your ability to manage your life with your money. If you look to money and it creates all of this anxiety, what am I gonna eat today? What am I gonna buy? And how am I gonna pay for this? And what, what about this expense? And how am I gonna, if you live in a state of like high, high anxiety about this, it's revealing this, this inherent trust in money as opposed to this inherent trust in Jesus. Here's the third thing that Jesus gives us that I think is really helpful. You worship money if it gives you a sense of value and worth. Do you ever walk into a room, and don't answer this out loud, do you ever walk into a room and feel better about yourself because of the stuff you have? You feel more secure about your life because of your bank account? You feel personally more valuable and, and, and treasured because you have a really, really uh, high savings account. Do you ever walk into a room and think, I've got a nicer house than people in my family, or I've got a nicer this or that or whatever, and it produces this thing in you where you feel a sense of worth and value. If that ever happens to you, that's just one of the ways that the Spirit of God is trying to alert you, hey, there's worship happening here. There's worship happening. And what would Jesus say to a person that walks into a room and feels really, really uh, valuable because of the stuff that they have? Well, he says it in verse 27. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He would look at this person that walks into a room and feels great about themselves because of who they are and what, they've, what, what they bring home in a year and all of the stuff that they've saved. Jesus would say to that person, hey, consider the lilies, they don't work for it, but I've actually clothed them in more splendor than what any human can do in their own human effort in trying to acquire all of this money. So if you walk into a room and it gives you a sense of value and worth because of your bank account, that's a God that you're worshiping. And then finally, number four, you worship money if you lack generosity. You worship money if you lack generosity. See, something Jesus says at the very end of this passage is actually the cure to this disease that we have of greed. But if you can't do the cure, then it reveals that the greed is in your heart. So let me, let me read this to you. This is in verse 33, and he says something startling. Jesus says, sell your possessions and do what? And give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. I, I've been in church for most of my life, and one of the things that I've noticed about passages like this is that in my own heart, and oftentimes even preachers, we do like the whole matrix backbend to get out of how that really says what it says. Sell your possessions. Oh, it doesn't really mean like sell your possessions and give to the needy. Like not really give to the needy, you know, just be more generous and maybe tithe a little bit. No, Jesus says sell your possessions and give to the needy. Do you have any possessions? Do you have any needy people in your life? Let me think about that for a minute. Someone in your life that has a need, do you have any possessions? Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now here's what's crazy. Like I have no problem with the first part of that. Sell your possessions. Thank you, Facebook Marketplace. It has really upped my sell your possessions game. Anybody use Facebook Marketplace? 
you should totally use it. It's awesome. I buy stuff off of there. We've sold a fridge off of there. I mean, it's great. And what it's done is it's changed the way I see my world to where now when I'm in my house, I'm just looking around at things like, what could I sell next? I, I could sell that chair. I could sell that piece of art. And I could sell my puppy. Anybody want a dog? Five dollars. In fact, I will give you five dollars if you take my dog. He's a horrible dog. So it's, 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 it's changed my life. I love it. My problem is not selling stuff because I think we've gotten good at that. My problem is that Jesus actually says, sell your stuff not so that you can add that into your bank account. Sell your stuff not so that you can kind of pad your rainy day savings fund. Not that it's bad to have one. He doesn't say sell your stuff so that you can go buy better stuff. It's a hard teaching. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And if in your heart there's this little voice, maybe it's not a little voice, no, you can't do that. Like some people out there should do that. Don't do that though. You need your stuff. You need your money. You need your possessions. If you're going to sell it, then get the money and put it in your own bank account. Don't give it away. If you have that voice, then what that's revealing is that there's worship of money going on in your heart. Chances are, This is a God that you bow down to because you can't even do this. Now, everything I'm saying is under the assumption that worshiping money is bad. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, then maybe you're like, why is that bad? Because money does give some sort of comfort, does it not? Money does help us out in life, does it not? It is great, isn't it, to have a a good amount of money set aside in a rainy day savings fund? It is great, isn't it, to bring home a good salary? Like, what's wrong with that? Why is worshiping money a bad thing? Are we sure it's a bad thing? What if, what if this is just Jesus' way of in- ensuring that we're not going to be able to have any fun in our lives? We're going to walk around and, and be poor and be sad. Well, I want to just answer that question with, with what Jesus says. He gives us the most glaring problem with the worship of money. And I want to tell you what he says, and then I want to unpack why I believe it's actually true if you're still doubting and wrestling with it. So here's, here's Jesus' radical claim about money in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is more than what you bring home in a year. Your life is more than what you can buy on Amazon. Your life is more than the house that you have and the car that you drive. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Are you wanting joy? Do you want a sense of meaning? Do you want, do you want purpose in life? Do you want real pleasure? Then money is not your answer, Jesus says. Your life is more than that, and life, true life, is not found in the abundance of your stuff and in your money. Now, why is that true? Well, let me just take a stab at it and give you my take on why I think what Jesus says here is profound and true. Here's the first one. Money itself cannot satisfy the human soul. Have you noticed? Money can't satisfy you. Now, that's bizarre because you honestly think deep down that money could satisfy you, but the reality is it can't. Let me just show you why. Uh, Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago for some of you, you had a number in your head of how much money, if I could make this salary, then I'd be okay. I wouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck. 
I'd be able to go out and have a little bit of fun, be able to buy some stuff that I want to buy. If I can make this, things would be all good here. And then what happened? Over time, for most of us, maybe not all of us, we hit that number in our head. Maybe even exceeded that number and went higher. And then what happened when you hit that number? Well, I'm still the same person, and I'm still kind of living paycheck to paycheck. And I still kind of think if I could make this much money now, then, I could, then I'd be okay. So what happens is you strive and you work and you, you work hard to get that and then you get that and, and then the number has gone up again and you keep doing this. And I just want you to know this, that game never, ever, ever stops. How do we know that to be true? Uh, John D. Rockefeller, you've probably heard of him. John D. Rockefeller was widely considered to be the wealthiest American of all time the wealthiest American of all time. He was one of the the richest persons in modern history, probably the richest person in modern history. According to Forbes magazine, his net worth was the modern equivalent, listen to this, it's like an imaginary number, $392 billion. Not million, $392 billion. Can you just wrap your head around that? Do you think if you had $392 billion that you would be satisfied? Do you think you'd have enough? Well, that was the question that someone put forward to John D. Rockefeller. Hey, how much is enough? How much do you need to be satisfied? And here was his famous retort. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Have you noticed that the mantra of your heart and my heart is always just a little bit more? Just a little bit more. How much do I need? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. What you're doing is you're taking money and you're trying to cram it into the depths of your bottomless soul that won't ever be satisfied by that money. So you're cramming and you're stuffing and you're filling and it doesn't work. And you can be the richest man in modern history, the richest person in modern history, three times more wealthy than Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, who's the richest man alive, three times more money than that guy and still say that you need more something broken in our heart. Here's another reason why I think Jesus is actually telling us the truth here when he says that life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. More money, and this is gonna be hard for you to grasp, but I think it's true. More money doesn't create an easier life, but a more difficult one. There's this great modern philosopher, uh, Notorious B.I.G., right? That, he, that said this really well. More money, more problems, it's true. It really is true. And you might not think that's true, but it's reality. Let me just ask you this, and I'd love to, like in this moment, could you step into it and be honest with me and be vulnerable? How many of you have ever played the lottery game? Now, I'm not asking if you've gambled. The lottery game, here's what it is, and then you can tell me. The lottery game is when you sit around with your family and friends and you go, if I were to win the lottery, I would fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Have you ever played that game? My hand's raised. It's a great game. We've all played it. And then we just go off on these random tangents. And it's amazing how long that game can play where it'll be like 15 minutes in and we're describing the type of pool that we are gonna install in our brand new house and all these. And I hope, I don't care what you do with that money if you do win, as long as the first thing is tithing to Frontline Church, you can do whatever you wanna do with it, right? And you think to yourself, man, if I were to win $20 million, $300 million, I would be set. Life would be great. I wouldn't have any issues. I could quit my job. I wouldn't have any problems. That's not true. How do we know that's not true? Well, there's a woman named Jen Dahl that writes for The Atlantic, 
and she wrote a great article. It was actually really sad, called A Treasury of Terribly Sad Stories of Lotto Winners. What she did is she spent months and months and months finding out all of this information about lottery winners and what happened to their lives afterwards, and she wrote all of it out into this article. You can find it online as a few years ago. And here just a, a sampling of some of the things that happened to lottery winners. Poverty, after spending all of the money on drugs and prostitutes. Poverty, after excessive gambling. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. The loss of lifelong friends. Being looked down on in the community for the winnings. Ending up in debt for failing to manage the money properly. Yes, that's possible. A descent into crime and bankruptcy. Getting murdered committing suicide, and then a host of other horrible things that she mentions in the article. Here's how she ends the article. You are verifiably more lucky if you don't win the lottery. You know the really lucky ones? They're the ones that don't win. Because if you win, what happens to the people that win is devastating. More money won't fix you. It won't heal you. It won't name you. It won't give you a sense of meaning and identity. It just can't do that. It's not what it was made to do. Jim Carrey says this, who, by the way, has lost his mind, right? If you know much about Jim Carrey. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer, right? It's one thing to live in a fantasy world of if I could get this, then I would be okay, but it's a really sad thing when you get the thing that you thought would make you happy and it doesn't work. Money can't fix you. And then finally, I think Jesus is right because of this reality. As a society, we are generally speaking more rich but less happy. Now I get that that's a general statement. Some of you are actually less rich today than you were 10 years ago, five years ago. Some of you right now is a financial hardship. You're, you lost your job, you're going through a crisis. And man, I just wanna say we have all the sympathy in the world for you. And what we actually wanna do as a church is come alongside of you and serve you and provide for you and be a blessing to you. So some of you, this isn't true, but generally as a society, it is true that we are more wealthy today than we were in 1960 and significantly less happy. Let me just give you some stats on this. The Pew Research conducted a recent study to see how Americans compared to the global middle class. So think about the, the global middle class in the world. Here's what was found. More than half, 56% of Americans were considered high income by the global standard. Another 32% were considered upper middle income. So if you add that together, here's the reality. Uh, almost nine in 10 Americans have a standard of living that is significantly above the global middle income standard. We're living better. We have more stuff, more possessions, more wealth, more money than most of the world. Nine in 10 Americans, that's true. And yet, when you contrast those findings with the World Happiness Report, which by the way, yes, that's a real report, the World Happiness Report, compiled by the, the UN, you see something really interesting. There's a guy named Jeff Sachs that is one of the authors for that report, and here's what he says. He's a professor at Columbia University. He says, the central paradox of the modern American economy is this. Income per person has increased roughly three times since 1960, but measured happiness has not risen. The situation has gotten worse in re recent years, 
happiness is now actually falling. We see this to be true because major depressive disorder affects, affects approximately 14.8 million American adults. Listen to this, with an annual increase of 20%. 14.8 million adults struggle with major dep- depressive disorder, annual increase of 20%. Studies show that from 1999 to 2010, the suicide rate among Americans aged 35 to 64 increased by nearly 30%. More people are depressed. More people are killing themselves. All the while our wealth and our possessions are skyrocketing. Why? Because money can't make you happy. Money can't give you joy. Money and having more of it doesn't equal life. It just doesn't. Full stop. Jesus said, for one's life does not consist and the abundance of his possessions. So that's actually one of the most loving statements that G- Jesus could make, isn't it? If he sees a group of people that are running after possessions and wealth and money to be the answer to their lack of peace, to be the answer to give them a sense of self-worth, to be the thing that gives them security and comfort, then one of the most loving things he can say is, don't run after that. Your life will not be found there. It's not found in the abundance of your stuff. So here's the question, where is life found? Well, this is why Jesus came into the world. See, Jesus left the comfort and safety of heaven, the wealth of heaven, and he came into this world. And though he was rich, the Bible says, he became poor for our sake so that we could become rich in his love. What Jesus does is amazing. He comes to spiritually poor people like us, and he brings us the very things that we really want, like security, like peace, like a sense of self-worth. And he, he comes to us and, and he gives us this kingdom that won't fade and won't go away by grace. He says, hey, are you broken? Are you sinful? Do you've got stuff in your heart that's wrong? Then you're invited by grace into my kingdom. I want you near and I want to be with you. And, and he dies on a cross to give us the ultimate security of having our sins forgiven and having his blood wash us of every bit of shame that we carry so that we can enter into his presence, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters who are richly loved by him. He gives us a sense of peace and not just inner peace, but a sense of peace with God that we long for. Our creator no longer looking at us with anger, but looking at us with affection and with love the way a father would look at a a son or a daughter because of his grace. Jesus in his death and resurrection, he gives us a sense of self-worth. Do you know that you are so valuable to God that he would rather lay his life down than see you perish? Uh, Even saying those words, it's hard for me to believe that. He would rather lay his life down for you than see you perish. The greatest, most significant being in the universe knows you and delights in you and chose you and laid his life down for you and redeems you and brings you to himself. Why would he do that? Phenomenal, unconditional love for you. That's giving you a sense of self-worth like nothing else in this world can. That's why Jesus came. And so here's the reality. God, money, is gonna demand that you die for it. Die, give your life for me. But the God of the Bible, he is the one that in Jesus died for us to give us life. It's amazing. So where do we go from here? Well, I just have a few things that I want to help shape us as a church, and I'll close with this. Just a few things. 
These are my hopes as one of your pastors for how this might shape our culture. So the first is this. My hope is that we would become countercultural in our contentment. Countercultural in our contentment. Can I ask you an honest poll? And I don't want you to raise your hands, but I want you to answer this question in your heart honestly. Do you desire to become rich? Do you desire that? If, if I were to say, hey, do you desire to be rich? What's the instinctive answer in your heart? But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, it's not money in and of itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you desire to be rich? There are a lot of days that the honest before God answer out of my soul is yes, I do desire to be rich. We gotta grapple with this because Paul says, if you desire to be rich, if that's in you, you might fall into temptation, into a snare, and a many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those are not my words. I don't like those words, but those are the words of the Bible. That's through the Spirit, the Apostle Paul, instructing us on how to live a life of contentment. If there's anything that a mo- modern American Christians need to learn, it's probably this radical gift of contentment, is it? isn't it? So may it be said of Frontline Church that we put to death even the desire to be rich in our heart. May it be said of Frontline Church, we have food, we have clothing, with these we will be content. That's one of my hopes for you and for me. Here's the second one that we would be countercultural in our generosity. That we'd be countercultural in our generosity. I want you to notice, and you've heard this, how Jesus ends his teaching on money in Luke 12. He, he ends it like this Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. By the way, that's everything the kingdom, his reign over all things. He gives it to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a co heir with Christ and you are going to inherit Mars. That's a big deal. All things, they belong to you in Jesus. So, what do we do in light of that reality? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where, there, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. That's my hope for Frontline Church, that we would rub against the world and push against the world in this way where we would say, yeah, the world says build bigger barns, get more stuff, you know, get all your money and keep it to yourself. Jesus says, no, take the barns down, empty the barns, give the stuff away. You only live once, so be generous. Be generous. This is why the early church grew so fast in a really hard culture. Tim Keller talks about this, and I'm not gonna read the quote to you, but he talks about how uh, in in the first century, everybody, the pagan world would just sleep with everybody. 
right? But here's the reality. The church, as they were captured by the generosity of Jesus, they would actually not give their bodies away to anybody, but they'd give their money away to everybody. So the church was uh, sexually faithful. They were walking in fidelity, but they were walking in financial promiscuity. They'd give virtually anybody their money when it was the reverse in the pagan world. People would never give their money away, but they'd give their body away to everybody. My hope is that we would be a financially promiscuous people. I've said this joke before, but it's worth saying again. I hope that people say, man, those people up front line can't even keep their wallet in their pants, right? Hey, that's funnier than you just gave me credit for. Thank you for that. That's way funnier. It's a good joke. If you're wondering, how do I do this? How do I step into generosity? Start by tithing. 10% of your gross income to the church, just start there. That's not radical, it's not revolutionary, it's actually quite a bit lower than what most people in the Old Testament were expected to give. You can't be generous until you are generous. It's not like you wake up one day, bring, I'm a generous person. No, you become a generous person by becoming a generous person. And then finally, number three, I'll close with this, that we would be countercultural in our preoccupation with Jesus instead of money. And I love how some of you are so budget sensitive. It's amazing. Some of you, you assign every dollar a job. You're like budgeting on your lunch break because you love it. You go home and you've got a poster of Dave Ramsey hanging above your bed that you pay homage to and then you go to sleep. Like I just love how you guys, some of you are that way. I, I, I sincerely, I'm not being patronizing. I sincerely love how so many of you are that way. Please don't stop being like that. Please don't stop being like that. But my hope and my prayer for you and for me is that as a church, we would apply that same level of energy and care and cultivation and creativity to our relationship with Jesus and to his mission. My hope is that the way you think about money is the way you think about being loved by God. My hope is the way that you assign every dollar job, that you approach the kingdom of God and his mission with that type of intentionality, that you squeeze and maximize your life for his service. That's my hope for you, that you'd be as preoccupied with your budget and with your finances and with your stuff as you are with Jesus. Maybe even more. Maybe even more. That's my hope and my prayer for us as a church, that we grow in our obsession and our preoccupation with him.